Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Inside Out Security Show. I'm Cindy Ng, a writer for Veronis' Inside Out Security blog. And as always, I'm joined by security expert, Mike Buffy. Hi, Mike. Hi, Cindy. How are you? A couple of weeks ago, we introduced the possibilities and promise of the Internet of Things. This week, we're very lucky to have pen tester Ken Monroe join our show so that we can talk about the vulnerabilities of things. Ken Monroe runs Pen Testing Partners, a firm that focuses on penetration testing on the Internet of Things. He's a regular on BBC, and most recently, he was interviewed by Andy Green, another writer for the Inside Out Security blog. Hi, Ken. Thanks for joining our show today. Hi. I've seen some of your presentations on YouTube on the different types of devices from cussing Kayla dolls to coffee makers, and you found vulnerabilities at all the various stages. And I think it'd be very helpful to start by talking about the structure of the Internet of Things, um, which I read online is divided into three different layers. Uh, the first layer is the perceptive layer, which are the sensors. The second layer, transport layer, uh, which includes the communication protocols. And the third layer, uh, application layer, which, uh, contain, which are the devices and um, the data. Can you give us a short primer on each of Yeah, for sure. So um, probably the one we're all most familiar with is, is the physical layer, I think. And that's where you're starting to get down to devices like this. Now, this is... Uh, a smart thermostat. And when we think about the physical layer, we're thinking about the buttons, the sensors, and then, of course, the electronics on the back. And there's lots of different ways in. Um, involves usually a higher skill set to get access to the, uh, the back end of these devices and start getting useful information out the back. But the other areas are much, much easier. So this particular device, this works over Wi-Fi, so it's got RF communications. So we're talking about the security of Wi-Fi, 802.11. We're talking potentially about security of um, mobile data. Uh, and there's lots of other different communication protocols, too. So there are issues with, uh, with Z-Wave, Zigbee, for example. But one of the easiest ways in is actually often through the application layer. So, for example, you have your, uh, your cell phone running the mobile application that's used to actually talk and control your IoT device. Often the easiest way in is through the communications from your cell phone into the cloud then back out to the devices themselves. You mentioned Zigbee and some of the, the more local um, control schemes. What, what do you think is more secure in general, like from a protocol standpoint? If you were trying to build one of these devices, would you build it off of one of like the local um, RF standards or, or would it be something that would be Wi-Fi and internet connected? So I always want to look for... Um, existing known protocols where the security architecture is known and it's easy to actually implement a, a secure communication. So there are, there are pros and cons, there are advantages and disadvantages of the different protocols. Obviously, some of those are range. So if you're thinking about Bluetooth, you've got a relatively limited range unless you've got a very high gain antenna. And Wi-Fi, again, easier to pick up from long distance. So if you've got a, a high gain antenna, you're prepared to travel around, you can often use Wi-Fi to find the devices you're looking for. There's also a, um, a big difference between something like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth in that war drivers, war driving databases are available on the internet. So you can actually use Wi-Fi and those um, war driving databases to find devices that are of interest to you. And there's a great example of that with the, the car hack we did. You could actually use Wi-Fi to find these devices to go and attack them. Hmm. I want to hear about the work you did on the car hack, but first, 
So last week, Mike, Mike and I were fighting about passwords. Mike thinks that we should all be rid of them. And I said, yeah, I agree, but we're still using them. And so I'm wondering with cars, is there a way to authenticate by how we drive? Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that because, you know, we're talking about the concept of biometrics. And, and, you know, when we first started thinking about biometrics, we thought about, you know, our fingerprints and our retina scans. But increasingly, um, researchers are noticing very um, marked ways that we, we do certain things. So the way that we speak, a large number of banks are looking at the moment as your voice pattern as a method of authentication. And with your cell phone, you unlock it with your fingerprint. Um, and the same thing with our, our walk, our gait, the way we drive. They're all, in some cases, uniquely identifiable. But the challenge I have with all of those is that you have to be very, very careful about how you store that biometric. And what worries me is, let's say, for example, you use a biometric to authenticate to a phone. If you haven't um, got a decent PIN or you haven't got the latest security software on there, you run the risk of not just losing your phone and your data, but also your biometrics. And the one great thing about passwords is if they're breached or stolen, you throw it away, you get another one. But I don't know about you, but I've only got eight fingers. So I have a limited resource for biometrics. <laughs> With the car hack, what brand was the car and what kind of uh, financial gains are hackers able to get from hacking a car? Or are people just tinkering with cars to see how far they can get? Well, I think there's, there's still a lot of road ahead of us. Um, I think at the moment all we're really seeing is, is initial research and some amazing stuff done by Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek and many others um, showing that cars do have security flaws. And, and as we've seen over the last few years, as an area of technology starts to become investigated, those with less than good intentions will start moving into that space. And I foresee in the future there is potential for malware, maybe even ransomware, and other horrible things to enter into uh, car security. Already we've started to see um, proof of concepts, taking over vehicles, taking over things like a smart thermostat. It's coming. Give it time. So you, you think the smart thermostat's going to start asking you, like, oh, if you want to turn it down to 70, put in, like, one Bitcoin to this address, and then, yeah. Well, this little puppy here, this is what part of this project was, was actually successfully getting malware to run on a thermostat. And uh, we did actually successfully manage to get some ransomware running, which would pop up a message that said, hey, guys, if you want to turn the thermostat up above uh, freezing, it's going to cost you a Bitcoin. That is some expensive fuel to heat your house. So. <laughs> yeah. What car brand were you hacking? So that's my Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid. So it's often called the PHEV. It's, it's a very popular vehicle over here in the UK and uh, across Europe and Japan. It's not shipping in the USA just yet, although I understand from the manufacturer's website it's due to ship in the fall this year. So what was what was the ingress to this? It was the Wi-Fi in the car, yeah. or was it a different system? Yeah, yeah, and that, that was the weird bit about it. I don't know if you have a, a smartphone application for your vehicle, but it probably connects to your your um, your car over uh, mobile data, so you can connect to it from anywhere in the world, you know, connect to your vehicle, and tell it to do stuff. What was weird about the Mitsubishi Outlander is that the mobile application connected to the car using Wi-Fi. And there's an access point on the car specifically for the purpose of communicating with the mobile uh, device. So you could do stuff like um, set up a charging program so you can charge it on uh, cheaper electricity perhaps overnight. You can um, tell it to uh, pre-cool or in the UK, preheat. <laughs> um, and other stuff like, you know, sending the lights on and stuff. So we started investigating the security of the Wi-Fi. And that's where things got quite interesting. So with that, um, how was that secured? 
Well, just like all Wi-Fi, it was secured with a, a pre-shared key. Um, but what was a bit unusual is the pre-shared key was set in the factory and was uh, given to the customer on a slip of paper inside the owner's manual. So they would take the key out of the manual, the, the piece of paper with the Wi-Fi key on it, pop it into their, their smartphone, and then they could talk to the Wi-Fi access point. Unfortunately, is that Wi-Fi key wasn't long enough. And uh, as I'm sure you're aware, Wi-Fi keys, if they're not long enough, are very vulnerable to cracking using uh, often graphic card-powered crackers. So you were able to crack the key and then it was an unsecured access point at that time or it was another fault in the application? So, Well, no. So once we got the key, that was the only layer of security, really. Um, you know, we were kind of hoping there was a bit more, but, you know, if, if the Wi-Fi key was strong, then fair enough. But it wasn't. So we cracked it. And that's when we started looking at the traffic going from the, uh, the cell phone to the vehicle. And we started listening to that, sniffing it um, over Wi-Fi, and started analyzing what information was being sent to the car when you sent certain packets to it. And once we'd had a good look at that and understood how the, uh, the traffic worked, we could then recreate those by hand and tell the car to do certain stuff without the smartphone. So this is this is great, Ken. You know, a lot of our um, a lot of the people listening to this, they're they're IT people, and so they're much more focused on securing these things. And I think it's great to hear like this is actually how someone would try to break into these things. And you know, we're talking about cars, but you know, the it, the same holds true for if you have you know a thousand kiosks that you're trying to set up security for, or you're trying to set up you know, fifteen branch offices. Um, no, this is this is really great. Um, so what can you share what tools you're using for that um, to, oh, to look oh, at sure. the traffic in between? So. Yeah, so um, in terms of key cracking, you probably want to use the AirCrack suite. It's um, part of the Kali Linux distribution, or you can go and download it yourself um, to allow us to sniff the key, crack the key. We then use some GPU-based cracking tools. But um, the bit that allowed us to actually start inspecting traffic was our friend Wireshark, the network sniffer. And uh, once you've got Wireshark, you've got pretty much everything you needed. You then need to spend some time analyzing the, the hex messaging that's going to and from. And it didn't take much to uh, figure out and reverse engineer the protocol how it communicated, and then without just replaying, we could actually just send simple hex messages. In the case of turning the vehicle lights on, you send six bytes. It's that simple. Wow. It reminds me of a James Bond movie where you can potentially pretend that you're in a car, but really you're not, and then attack. As I remember a really um, cool piece of research done by the guys at Cloudflare against the uh, the Tesla electric vehicle. Um, they had some really, really clever stuff going on. And one which I loved was that um, you could set up uh, an access point, and as the Tesla was driving past on the road, it would sound its horn automatically without the driver being involved. Oh, that's my kind of uh, hacking. <laughs> so so with that, and you, you brought up Tesla, which is really interesting, because Tesla, you know, it's a car, and we, we have a very firm idea of what a car is, and we have a separate idea of what software is, but now that line is really being blurred. So, like, with Tesla, you have an end-user license agreement the same way you do with, you know, yeah. software, and part of that says, like, well, you're not really supposed to muck around with a lot of these things. Yeah. Um, what, what are your thoughts on uh, sort of the freedom to tinker um, and then also uh, – with respect to, there's been some talk of, oh, well, there should be some very clear laws put in place that says, like, remote access to the control aspects of vehicles. That's something different than, say, the entertainment suite, because I think that was the other mm -hmm. en route to some of the other car hacks was, 
that, you know, the upgrade, the CD player, MP3 player, and you take over the main bus of the car. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I really enjoy the Internet of Things is because, you know, unlike, um, you know, a website which is owned by someone, and you, know, you mustn't touch it because it's theirs unless you have their permission. The great thing about the Internet of Things is the manufacturers will sell you their stuff. And most of them will sell you this stuff without any thought to an end user license agreement. So you know, the fact that you can buy a thermostat and import it from the, the Far East, you've got access to everything on there. Um, and for example, what I've got here is uh, this particular thermostat. We've got it glued, um, uh, basically a JTAG uh, communications device glued into JTAG ports here. And we can talk to it locally, and we can scrape um, the firmware from it. We can look at it. And this particular device has got a problem because the firmware isn't digitally signed. So we can extract it, modify it, and deploy our version of the firmware that we want, which can then run things like malware. And that's the great piece I love about IoTs. There's a much greater attack surface to play with. It's not just looking at web services, mobile apps, websites. It's playing with the hardware and firmware itself. And that's where it gets so much more interesting. So you talked about the the hardware and the firmware, um, and you know it sounds like like in the case with Mitsubishi, they were really trying to secure the stuff. Like they they did have at least different things. Uh, with a lot of the IoT stuff, it feels like there isn't even an attempt. They don't expect anyone to you know try to connect to it or do anything with it, and that that's not part of the that's not part of the sales pitch almost for it. Like that, the security is a far afterthought to the convenience and the use of the IoT yeah. devices. Um, what what do you think it will take to change that, or do you think it should change? So, well, so I think one of the big challenges is you know is if you're first to market as an IoT vendor, you're going to get to capture that market and define how it operates. So there's a huge amount of pressure from um, IoT manufacturers, investors, from production cycles that are usually book six nine months in advance in the Far East. So there's a huge amount of pressure to get your product to market. And so often security is kind of left out. Maybe the manufacturer didn't consider it. Maybe it was going to be too costly. Um, so you'll find technology getting to market that just isn't ready. And I've got an example over here, actually, of um, a product that did get to market. But actually, the manufacturer had really thought about it. And this is this is my ring doorbell. It's, it's a smart doorbell, sends CCTV. And it has a bug. Um, so if you unhook it from the door, you can press this button, and uh, from the embedded access point and web server, you can get the user's Wi-Fi key back. But the guys at Ring did a really cool thing, is they could update their firmware over the air, which meant that, yes, while we reported the bug to them, they said, guys, that's great. Can you give us a few couple of weeks to fix it? Thought, wow, a couple of weeks. And within a fortnight, they've managed to update every single one of their customers' doorbells over the air wirelessly. And I thought that was really cool. So we think Ring's a really cool vendor, by the way. But so often, there's no route to actually fix the firmware over the air. So once the product's sold, you're stuck. In terms of a healthcare perspective, there must be um, IoT devices. So let's say you, you guys mentioned ransomware, and let's say somehow it gets on a pacemaker. Would it affect battery life? Uh, because battery life is often a common problem and concern with the Internet of Things. Well, it, it's certainly a risk. I mean, one of the challenges with any IoT device is going to be power supply. You know, particularly if it's not a mains wired device like one of these, if it's a, a portable device, it's going to be reliant on its battery. And the efficiency of battery and power use is really, really key. Um, so if you could do something that's going to drain the battery excessively, then you've got a real problem on your hands. Now, you know, in the case of a non-critical system like a toy, who really cares? But in the case of something that's life-threatening, something that, you, you, that keeps you alive, draining the power on a battery is a pretty nasty thing. But I think that's not the only issue with um, 
healthcare devices. We've also seen many cases of simple interference with the device. And a great, I think, example of that was by the late and amazing Barnaby Jack, who showed um, a vulnerability with a Bluetooth insulin pump. And he was uh, quite confident that he could um, modify the operation of that pump and potentially deliver someone a diabetic, a fatal shock of insulin. Wow, that's, that's really scary. My dad actually has, like, a whole suite of those kind of things for uh, his diabetes to manage it and track it and things. It, yeah, just remember, don't, don't go interfering with them. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you have some other devices there, Ken. Could you show us a few of those maybe? Yeah, sure. So I, I want to share with you first that probably the device that first got me interested with this. And this is um, very old. It's, um, it's over 10 years old. It's an IP building management controller. And this came out... Um, of a, a large airport and um, is basically a web server that controls door locks, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, among many functions. And we discovered that there's simply no authentication on this. And if you're anywhere on the same network as this, you can unlock doors, turn the heating off, turn the air conditioning on, all sorts of crazy stuff. So that, that's really early. Now, the security of these devices started to improve. That's when we started looking at consumer devices. And this, this little thing is my Wi-Fi kettle. Um, a lot of people say, why do you have a Wi-Fi kettle? But the idea is that you keep your smartphone by your bed, and then you connect to your, uh, your, your smart kettle over Wi-Fi. So when you wake up in the morning, if you want a cup of hot tea, like we all do in the UK, you press the button on your um, cell phone. And then when you get to your kitchen, this is boiled, saving you a few seconds of your life, I suppose. <laughs> but um, what's interesting, I've actually got inside, I've dismantled um, the, uh, the, the uh, base of it. And that, it, we see, is really covers what a lot of problems with IoT devices is, this is the Wi-Fi module, and you can see it's literally been added on to the existing power um, control board. Um, the manufacturer who developed this didn't really understand security, and um, it was actually incredibly easy for us to um, use a Wi-Fi directional antenna, point it, send some deauthentication packets, get the kettle to connect to us, and then we could retrieve the user's Wi-Fi key in plain text from this device over Wi-Fi. Um, so you can find these devices using war driving databases. You can go and drive around to people's houses, point an antenna at their kitchen, and steal their Wi-Fi keys from their, uh, their tea kettle, which is crazy. Um, and people say, well, so what if I've got your Wi-Fi key? Well, if you, if you haven't changed your router admin password, I'll jump on there, change your DNS, and then all of your internet traffic goes to me. So got everything. Now, that's something we talk a lot about, is security in depth and why you need, you know, like any entry point is, is a potential disaster. Um, also, minor note, that is the most British IoT hack I have ever heard of, Ken. So, <laughs> well, we, we can't do without our tea. <laughs> here would be Keurigs. If anyone hacks the Keurigs, I think we're all doomed in the States. But, so. <laughs> so you have a, a BB-8 there. and um, mm. so Yeah, I, this little guy. And this illustrates the little point. I mean, I'm sure you guys have all seen Star Wars, right? Um, and I love this guy. Um, so when I saw him come on the market as a little um, uh, app-controlled droid, he's very cool, and I didn't play with him at all at Christmas at all, guys. Um, he's really cool, um, but illustrates one of the points that we often find is when we have a look at the way that his firmware is updated, it's updated without using SSL. So the firmware update process is unencrypted, and that can be really dangerous. Now, in this particular case, you'd be very lucky to intercept it, but if you could, you could potentially push rogue firmware to the guy, and uh, we thought it was quite funny because you could potentially modify his actions and turn him to dark side, if you like. But even you know, big brands like this, who are supported by Disney and others, 
And sometimes they make mistakes. And again, in fairness, the guys behind this company called Sphero, um, so we reported to them privately over Twitter DM, and within 10 days, they fixed the bug. And that's really cool. So um, this little guy is totally fixed now. Um, I really love the toy, and I love some of the other cool stuff they're doing. Just along the way, they made a bit of a mistake, but they could fix it, and that's great. You know, there will be IoT vendors that don't get it perfectly right first time, but as long as they can fix it, it's not a problem. The problem is, like with the kettle, for example, that can't be fixed over the air. Once you bought that, that's it. It's vulnerable forever. Well, that's interesting. We talk, talk about the patterns of this stuff. So a couple of things. One, um, again, most of our you know listenership is more like IT focus, and you're talking a lot about um, responsible disclosure. Could you talk a little bit more about like sort of how you go about that? What your what your approach is for discussing things with the vendor? So. So the most important thing is, is to establish a channel with the vendor and say, look, guys, you know, we found something, we're worried about it, can you verify it yourselves? Um, and the process for getting in touch with them is, is sometimes they'll have a, uh, an email address they publish or a contact us form, and certainly the bigger vendors do that, which is great. And we send them some details, and they'll come back straight away going, thanks, guys, that's really interesting, we need to verify this. Can you bear with us while we verify it? We'll come back to you in three, five days. Great, that's fine. And then once they've verified it, they come back and say, yeah, okay, we agree. It's going to take us four weeks to write some new firmware and test it before we can push it out. Can you keep quiet until then? We'll say that's absolutely fine. You know, we're not trying to expose people. We're just trying to make things more secure. That's fine. And um, a good example of Ring and the guy Sphero behind the BBA, really cool vendors. Really, They totally get it, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about that. The challenge is when the vendor won't talk to you, and this is probably because they've given no thought to the whole process of security. And the, the guys behind the kettle totally didn't engage with us just weren't interested. We, we tried hard. Um, uh, we sent them emails. We had a couple of Twitter exchanges with them. Just weren't interested in the issue. And we had a similar issue with Mitsubishi when we started talking about the, the hack of the Outlander. Is, I don't know if we caught them on a bad day or we got the wrong guy, but they came back to us after a couple of weeks and said they didn't think what we found was an issue. And that caused us real problems because at the same time as publishing the bug, we also had a way to fix it too. And we wanted to share that with Mitsubishi. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, the only way to get them to start paying attention was to involve a journalist um, who they did pay attention to, which is great. And actually, in fairness, Mitsubishi are now being really cool about this. They've, um, they're working very hard on a, a permanent fix, and they've got a communication out to all their customers, and things are looking much better. So sometimes the vendors have a little stumble, and then they get it sorted, and sometimes they just don't engage at all, in which case you're stuck. Do you publish and expose everybody, or do you keep quiet about it? and everyone's still exposed. So sometimes, you know, if you can do it well and do it right, publish anyway. I have a question about GDPR. Have you had customers inquire about how you can help them meet compliance? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually. So we're seeing legislation that's kind of in line with a lot of um, legislation in the U.S. involving personal data privacy. Um, and, yes, it's, um, it's certainly popped up on uh, organizations' radars, and a lot of them are going, this GDPR thing, what do we need to do? How do we need to reshape our business? How, what do we need to do to make sure that we're not leaking people's data? And I think it's a really good thing. Um, it's certainly driving organizations to, to look after data that we share with people. It's a, bit, a little bit like perhaps you know, the PCI, the payment card industry, um, how you know, credit card data used to be handled fairly loosely. Actually, after the industry said, no, you, know, you need to look after this data. Fraud volumes are too high. Everyone started paying attention and fixing the problem, and you could shop online with much more confidence. What about, um, we talk a lot about privacy by design. Um, do you do a lot of educating 
or do you are you kind of hired mostly like here here find where I'm vulnerable? Do you do a little bit of both? So I think that the real key with security is design it in from the very beginning, and it's 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 all very well bringing in someone to evaluate your security at the end of the project, but if you've made a mistake. What's going to happen? You know, all of a sudden, you've got a huge problem. We're trying to re-engineer your, your your architecture to fix the security bug. Much, much better is have a conversation with security experts right at the beginning. So what sort of things do we need to look for? What sort of things should we be defending against right at the beginning so that when you get to the end and your security assurance is carried out, it's a formality because you know it's secure already. That's a much better way of doing it. Are there some... You know, I sort of asked this before, but are there some frameworks or best practices you'd like to see implemented? Like, you know, we've talked about patterns, like the ability to update remotely seems like a great one. Like if that was just sort of uh, a feature that you could look for, um, like that, uh, that would be a positive. Um, to oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, guidance and frameworks are the key to this. And a great example there is if you can update remotely, that's awesome. But at the same time, if you don't implement that over the air update process correctly, you can introduce security vulnerabilities at the same time. So you've got to be very careful about the way you do it. Now, there are lots of organizations trying to um, generate some good practice advice. Um, there are uh, uh, there's a great Twitter account, I'm the Cavalry, who's working really hard to propagate good security advice. I believe the US FDA are working on some uh, medical IoT device advice. And in the, uh, the UK and more widely, we have the Internet of Things Security Foundation, which is trying to publish um, good practice advice for organizations to follow to get the basics right so that when you, the consumer, go and buy a device, you've got some confidence. Um, we've also published a bit of uh, advice on our website, on our blog, just some 10 easy steps to, that uh, a vendor can follow to make sure that their systems are broadly secure. What's a common manufacturing problem you find from a security perspective that's often overlooked? So one of the most common and easiest to find areas is to do with um, the mobile application, the one that's used to communicate between here and your smart device. Now, the most common problems we find, lack of encryption. So the communications aren't encrypted, or the data that's been stored on here is not encrypted. Or crazy one is we find the IoT vendors passwords in this device and hasn't stored them safely. So it's a really, really common problem. So if you're having a mobile application developed for your um, IoT device, make sure it's secure because just giving it to a third party to develop on least cost, you're not going to get a great job done. Um, other areas we find lots of problems with, like I said, with the smart thermostats, we forget some, we find firmware is not encrypted, we find the firmware is not signed, so it's easy to intercept, extract, and modify it. And then a really common problem we find is, so we should not have access in a production device to the JTAG port. That's it for diagnostics when you're producing it and fault finding. In a production device, that interface shouldn't be live. It should be disabled so that we can't talk to that and we can't mess around with it. So where can I get one of these JTAG uh, things? <laughs> so um, this particular one is an Olimex, uh, which is one we use. That's great for JTAG uh, interfacing with. I've got another one over here, which is useful for um, other top ports. This is um, a, a logic analyzer you know, with the logic probe, so you can probe things like the UART and SPI ports, which are quite handy to get data off the device. But JTAG is often a really good way in. So um, yeah, go and spend a bit of money on a nice JTAG um, analyzer, and you're in a good place. You know, sometimes I think, like, you know, that new PS4 and it seems pretty nice. But I get a JTAG analyzer. That'd be fun, too. Yeah. I could go either way. Yeah, so. yeah damn right. <laughs> Write yourself a new firmware for your PS4. No, it seems good. I think there's a lot of, you know, so far 
I think I get a new cell phone, a kettle, and a BB-8 Sphero uh, signed off for uh, expense it to Verona's. Well, this, here's one I really like. This is um, these are my smart ski goggles. These are quite cool. They're um, uh, they've got a little if you can see a little uh, sort of heads up display in there, which is really cool. I really like that. It's um, unfortunately they're actually quite secure. So whilst it was a, a great expense, um, very useful as ski goggles, not so useful for research, unfortunately. We want them throwing up like, oh, there's a tree in your path, and then there isn't really a tree. So. Yeah, you're always looking slightly down instead of where you're going. How do you, like, what is your approach when you get, like, a new toy? Because how do you go about inspecting it? Well, so um, the first thing to do is uh, look at the various RF interfaces. So a good example like this little guy, uh, Cognitose Dino. Uh, it's been kickstarted recently. It's a really cool little toy. Um, so the first thing we do is switch them on and see what happens. So in this particular case, this guy is um, he's got a Wi-Fi access point on, so you can talk to that and start uh, interfacing with the web server that runs on the Wi-Fi access point. Start looking at traffic, see what's happening, intercept that and modify it, and see where you get to. Um, once you've done that um, and exhausted all potentials, the next place to go is to start taking the guys apart and seeing what technology is going on inside. And that's where you need to get your logic probes out. Start looking for um, input outputs. See what you can intercept, see what you can play around with, see what you can modify, and see if you can make it do things that it really shouldn't do. Um, in the case of this thermostat, for example, once you've done that, you can recover the user's Wi-Fi key. Uh, another good example I've got here, this is um, the Fitbit Scales. They're really cool. Fitbit, very cool vendor. They've got a really cool security team that are engaged with us. We love them. Um, but this particular one, uh, once you've got inside the back of it, I won't destroy this one because it actually still works, um, and you can recover the user's Wi-Fi key on it. Fitbit, cool vendor. They fixed this really quickly, um, and it's a really nice, secure set of scales now, particularly after a guy called Tavis Ormandy found some bugs in it as well. Um, but again, it's how the vendors respond and how they deal with security researchers that I think really makes the difference between a cool IoT vendor, one who's got your security nailed, versus one who ignores you and leaves their customers wide open. How many devices do you go through when you're looking for vulnerabilities? <laughs> We've been through 10 sets of Fitbit scales. Um, I have nine sets of kettles. Um, most of them don't work anymore. This is my coffee machine by the same vendor. This one doesn't work anymore. I do have two more that do currently work. And we've currently got four Kayla dolls, although we vary. So you have the original Kayla here. She is, she's fantastic. She's uh, no longer working. But now we have a new upgraded Princess Kayla doll. And she's really cool. But she still swears as well. Are your kids ever like, no, Daddy, don't touch the toys. I want to play with it. You're going to cut it open. Yeah, I do remember one instance um, where my uh, eight-year-old daughter came into the office on a, a day off school, and uh, she came in and said, oh, Daddy, can I play with the toy? Yes, yeah, so I gave her the Kayla, and I completely forgotten that I hadn't um, cleaned out the database. And um, she says, hello, Kayla, and she said something very unpleasant back to her. Bad parent. <laughs> do you give yourself a time limit when you're looking for vulnerabilities? And I know this isn't a good analogy, but I can get lost on the Internet looking for information for hours. So you, you often get a feel quite early on about whether a device is going to be very vulnerable or is actually doing a pretty good job. Um, so you can often tell, tell by the type of Wi-Fi module that's been implemented. So if you see it's a cheap Wi-Fi module, there's a fair chance that the manufacturer is doing security on the cheap. If it's an expensive Wi-Fi module, then there's a good chance that they're taking security a bit more seriously. So you get a feel quite early on for um, whether a device is worth spending time on or actually, do you know what? You bought it and it's pretty good actually. And there's a, a lot of systems here that we've got that actually were pretty good. Um, but it's the devices I've got hanging around me now that um, are the ones that were a bit of a train wreck. 
The past few years, headlines have been year of the data breach, and I wondered if 10 years from now, it would be the year of vulnerabilities. As we start to, you know, make our homes smart, I think that's when we'll start to see the criminals interested. What can they do? What can they? What money can they get out of us? How can they hold us to ransom? Not just you know, our computers and our data. Can they actually hold us, our houses, our homes, our stuff? Can they hold that to ransom electronically as well? And that's that's when I think things will get quite interesting. How connected are you at home with the Internet of Things? No, there is no IoT in my house. Um, I'm, I'm still very cynical about the security of the Internet of Things. Um, and long may it stay that way. Um, have we seen real things happening? No. I personally haven't seen anything particularly nasty happen to anyone yet. Will it happen? Yeah, I think so. You know, we showed stealing passwords from smart fridges in the past, and as people start to adopt these technologies, I think we'll start to see it. You know, in the U.S., I know you have um, smart appliances already. We're a little behind you guys in the U.K. in terms of smart appliances, but I, I have a smart Wi-Fi oven by my feet just here, um, and that's got security problems. So you know, ovens, heat, electricity, it all starts to sound pretty dangerous to me. You sort of undercut my question, which was I was I was looking at the Wemos, the programmable lights, because I thought it'd be really cool to have stuff like, oh, I get an email and I could like write my own little script that would like make it blink when I got an email, <laughs> kind of alert stuff. And now now you've just terrified me. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, what's the worst it's gonna do? Like blink really rapidly and like blind me or something? Like it's not that scary. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's great to think about. I, I would ask yourself, do you need your lights to blink to tell you have any email? I don't know. My, you know, my, my smartphone obviously beeps at me. When I, I think I can survive with that. Um, guys, just quickly, my cell phone's about to run out of charge here. That's, so, uh, that's like yeah. a whole other thing, which is at this yeah. point, everyone has like five broken smartphones from upgrading yeah. all the time. So I can just yeah. line those up on the wall. <laughs> yeah, and they can all flash at you. And that's, yeah. also, and that's also a really good question. A good thing to ask is, if you can do something, should you? And for instance, you get an email and the lights go on. Do you really need that? Well, so I think it's often we ask the question, you know, IoT, you know, are we doing it because it's a gadget, because it's a gimmick, because it's geeky, or are we doing it for the right reasons? And I think the Internet of Things has a, a big place to play in assisted living for, for the elderly and people less able than, us, than ourselves, perhaps, help them lead an independent life. I think there's some really cool stuff going on in that space. But for the rest of us, do do we need this tech? And I, I would ask yourself, are you just doing it because it's fun and geeky? Or are you doing it because there's actually a, a real need? Does it save you time? Does it save you money? Does it save you energy? So I'd ask yourself that question before perhaps going out and buying the next IoT gadget. There is an article about how we have lots of technology and interesting gadgets, but we're not really moving our economy. And they're saying that, fine, we have really great new gadgets, but is it really improving and increasing our productivity? I think there's, there's, there's a lot of you know, association, the potential for big data to, to help organizations maybe sort of you know, push or nudge the way that we do things, you know, to help us use our natural resources a bit more efficiently, you know, to help us order food a bit more efficiently, to help us you know, use things, everything we have in our everyday lives. But it could also be quite invasive. You know, it would worry me that big corporations would do the wrong thing. Just be a little bit cynical. You know, ask yourself, you know, is that like, device that I'm buying, putting my house connected to my Wi-Fi or whatever, is it doing it safely? Is it adding value? Is it adding to my security? Or actually, am I inadvertently leaking my Wi-Fi keys? Or 
leaking personal data that people can use to invade my privacy. I, I just want to say thanks so much for doing this, Ken. This was awesome. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. So. Hey, I really appreciate the invite. Thank you, guys. If people want to follow your work, uh, where can people find you on social media, Ken? Okay, so my Twitter handle is The Ken Monroe Show, <laughs> which is a little ironic, I suppose. Thanks, Ken, for joining our show today. And thanks, Mike, all our listeners, viewers, for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Veronis, V-A-R-O-N-I-S. And if you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can go to iTunes and search for the Inside Out Security Show. There is a video version of this on YouTube that you can subscribe to on the Veronis channel. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week. 